Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman. And today, my conversation partner is Chip Hammond. Uh, Chip is the pastor of Bethel Presbyterian Church in Leesburg, Virginia. He's also a jazz drummer, which is probably driving some of you crazy right now. How can someone be a pastor of a Presbyterian church, of all things, and a jazz drummer? We're going to talk about jazz. We're going to talk about Christianity's influence on jazz and jazz's influence on Christians. And um, Chip, welcome to Questions That Matter. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Randy. Thanks. Um, uh, Chip, you and I met several years ago. You're a senior fellow also for us at the Institute, and you've been, um, you've written some articles for us, a couple of different resources that have been very, very helpful. Um, but it was uh, soon after we first met that I was visiting your church and I saw a set of drums and I thought, oh, well, that looks interesting. And then you told me they were your drums. I said, oh, that's even more interesting. And uh, so we've gotten to know each other a little bit through this world of jazz. I was a music major back uh, 150 years ago when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, I would say that before I became a Christian, jazz was actually my god. A very disappointing God, by the way. It's a really beautiful art form, but it's not a very good God. And um, the Lord delivered me from that, but I still, I, I so enjoy jazz. And when when you don't make it a God, it's a wonderful gift, like so many, many things. Um, but first, tell our listeners a little bit about how it is that you came to faith, because I believe your story is, uh, it's worth some good reflection on. Well, um, yeah, I, I think that when I was uh, young, right, I was uh, really into music. Though it wasn't uh, wasn't wasn't jazz. It was the popular music of the time, which was in the seventies. Uh, um, and I grew up in a nominally uh, Roman Catholic home, but my family really had no faith. We didn't really go to church. And uh, I suppose it was probably around when I was about twelve years old. I remember asking my mom. Um, I said to her, "Mom, why is it wrong to steal?" And she was a little taken aback and she said, well, you weren't raised that way. And I said to her, well, if I had been raised that way, would it be okay? <laughs> and Good she question. said, no, she said, uh, she said, uh, you, you'd get, you'd get in trouble and go to jail. I said, so things that you can go to jail for, you would, uh, that th those things are wrong. And she said, yes. I said, so so people aiding the Jews in, in Germany and the Netherlands and France uh, in the 1940s, that was wrong. And she said, no. And what I was really asking is, what is at the basis of right and wrong? Mm. Well, my mom, a wonderful person, uh, became, a, became a follower of Jesus later in life, uh, but wasn't really a follower of Jesus, I don't think then but was a believer in God, she really had no answer for me. And the result of that was that uh, from about the time I was 12 years old, I decided that I was an atheist. And it was very soon after that, that a, that a thought occurred to me. I think that most atheists, thankfully, are not you know, really consistent. And thankfully, I wasn't as consistent as I could have been. But what I realized is that if there is no God, there's, there's no right and wrong, that we're just here for a time, the planet's here for a time, uh, everything is going to pass away. And once it does, it won't matter anymore. And mm. so there really is nothing that is right or wrong. And um, I lived somewhat consistently with that through my teenage years. I think that God preserved me um, from, the, from the worst of it and, uh, and preserved me from, uh, from, 
from getting caught in things that I probably could have gone to prison for. Um, but um, but uh, um, I think about the time that I was entering college, I uh, began to think about that question. Um, if there is no God, then there's no right and wrong. And I, the, the, the weight of that if really began to weigh on me. Hmm. Well, at about that time, my brother became a Christian and his life just dramatically changed. It really hmm. caught my attention. And I began to talk to some of his Christian friends. Um, didn't really like what I was hearing, but I was really intrigued. Um, and uh, and I, I began to become attracted uh, to that. I, I think I still had that kind of intellectual question. And interestingly, I went to a state university um, and the first semester there, I had a class uh, introduction to philosophy. I think the professor was probably a Christian, though he never said. And um, and he had us read just ping-ponging back and forth throughout the whole semester um, arguments for and against the existence of God. And uh, we did some paper in that, as I recall. I don't recall the paper. I remember uh, as we were coming up to the date of the final, I asked the professor, what's the final going to be on? And he said, well, if you've done the reading, don't worry about it, you'll do fine with it. And when I walked in to that uh, class, the, there was one question on the final exam. The question was, does God exist or not? And I walked out of that class after reading those things, walked out of that class realizing that I was not an atheist anymore. Wow. Um, but then I had the question of, so, so who is this God I believe mm. in? And, uh, you know, through a series of things, I think that when I look back on it now, I can see God's, you know, tremendous providence that the people I met, the people that I came in contact with, um, all were my pathway to coming to Christ. Hmm. Wow. So a philosophy final exam is a <laughs> crucial component in your testimony. Amazing. Can God work in a philosophy classroom? I love it, man. Um, well, um, so I wanted people to hear a little bit of that background, just that story. But so when did when did playing the drums come along? And um, and when did when and how did it uh, lead toward jazz drumming? Yeah, um, well, um, I uh, I, um, I began playing the drums probably about the same time I became an atheist at about 12 years old. A lot of people and, think those two go together, by the yeah, way. But, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I, I had an interest in it. My, uh, my sister, who's about 10 years older than me, the fellow that she was dating, who is, uh, who's now her husband, um, uh, and, you know, has been for the last, you know, many decades, um, was a, uh, was a drummer in a band. And, uh, and so I became interested in the drums uh, through him. And um, he, you know, was playing the popular music at the time, but he uh, really liked uh, the, the drummers that pioneered the way, Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and uh, mm. Dave mm. Tuff and uh, oh, there's a whole bunch of others, you know. And, um, and, uh, and so um, I began uh, taking uh, private lessons with a fellow by the name of uh, Carl Wolf in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Carl Wolf was a very well-known um, jazz session player. And, uh, and so all my lessons were jazz oriented. I think that that caused me to play a little bit differently than, the, than, the, than a lot of the other contemporary drummers. 
um, that uh, that I was uh, playing with. So that so that's how I got you know interested in music. I think the same thing what you said that for me music was kind of a god, and um, and after I came to faith in in Jesus, um, I just let that go for a very long time, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. probably about um, eight ten years ago. Uh, became interested again. You know, I'd always had a practice pad, always had drumsticks out. Uh, I just found it very relaxing. Um, and, uh, and I, but I began to, uh, you, you approach jazz, uh, you know, differently the way you play, you just approach it differently than you approach um, uh, rock. And uh, there were things about it that were more subtle, uh, dynamics matter more. There were things that were, that I just liked about it that I found challenging. And so I began to uh, to to study that, make a study of it in my uh, in my uh, spare time, and uh, started going to, uh, to 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 jazz jams uh, everywhere from uh, you know the on the border of West Virginia out to Washington D.C. and uh, and have met a lot of uh, um, great musicians, uh, good people, and um, and and has started playing again. Yeah, so mm. I really enjoyed it. All right, so I'm going to jump way ahead because I know that your church just sponsored an event a month or so ago um, about jazz. What was it called? Uh, Faith in a minor key or something like that. It was called spirituality in a minor key. There yeah. we go. Yeah. And so what what prompted that, and how did all that go? Well, um, when I was in when I was at Westminster Seminary, there's a fella. He still teaches there. He's probably getting close to retirement, but his name is uh, Bill Edgar. And uh, Bill Edgar, William Edgar, um, has written a number of things on music. He was a uh, actually has a degree in ethnomusicology from Harvard, and he went to Westminster, and then he went to France to uh, Aix en Provence, where he got his uh, Doctor of Theology degree, and he he taught. Um, uh, uh, at the seminary there in uh, in Aix-en-Provence was involved with uh, with Francis Schaeffer's Labrie, um, and uh, you know the whole kind of cultural transformation thing. But Bill is a uh, an unbelievably gifted jazz pianist, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that while he was in France, he, he played some uh, some jazz uh, to help support himself there while he was a student. And um, when I was at Westminster, I played with him a few times. We played on a few occasions together. Um, uh, that was a, a fun thing to do. And uh, Bill uh, does this lecture series uh, called Heaven in a Nightclub. And mm. uh, in that lecture series, he, uh, he, he just talks about the kind of the, the symbiosis between uh, jazz and spirituality, particularly Christian spirituality. And, um, and, uh, and I, you know, got hold of, uh, of, of his bibliography. I've read his books, but besides that, just the bibliography that he had recommended uh and uh, and i've read most of those things and i uh, just kind of uh you know took a deep dive into it and i and i got this idea to kind of uh you know do this thing so i asked a bunch of my uh, musician friends hey i want to do this presentation called spirituality in a minor key it's a kind of a story and song event it's going to have talking and then that talking is going to be uh, underscored or accented or illustrated with music, would you would you help me do that? And uh, and so got a number of people uh, who agreed to do that. Um, most of these people are not church people, but mm-hmm. they were uh, mm-hmm. but they were glad to uh, to come 
and uh, you know, and help me with that. And uh, and in that, it was really not hard to uh, to you know to bear witness, to bear testimony to the gospel, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the hope that it gives. I think one of the things that was really gratifying to me is one of the musicians uh, after that, because they had no idea what I was going to say said to me, uh, hey, that stuff that you said while we were doing this. And uh, and I said, oh, boy, I thought, oh, boy, here it comes. He said, he said, that was really great. He said, if you ever do this again, would you please call me? Ah, how about and, that? And, and this is a guy who doesn't, you know, he's not church. He doesn't go to church. Mm -hmm. All right. So there's so many different directions we could go here with this conversation. Um we, we could talk about, so your love and interest in jazz connects you to non-Christians who also love jazz. Yes. And so you're going to jam sessions and you do uh, gigs and stuff. And so uh, we could go, but we're not going to. I, we could go in the direction of, I want to say to our listeners, what are, what are some of these interests that you have that could be common ground with your non-Christian neighbors or co-workers or people. Maybe you love going to art museums or, uh, I, I mean, there's a million topics. And very often we do those things with fellow Christians. Well, why not invite some non-Christians along? So that's what you're doing with your j jazz drumming. Um, so we could we could talk about that, but we're not going to. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to explore the unique thing about jazz, because this is something that I've been thinking about a bunch and I, I've tried to teach it in some different settings. And, and even for people who have no interest in jazz or no experience with jazz, I think they can get this concept. Um, one of the essences of jazz is improvisation within a structure. So what I mean is, you know, jazz musicians, they decide they're gonna play a certain song. Uh, how high the moon and they play it the drummer plays it the piano player plays it the saxophone player plays it the bass player plays it they're all playing they're moving through the same set of chord progressions and a soloist will play the melody but then they'll play the song again only this time the soloist doesn't play the melody he improvises a whole new melody but it's still within the structure of that same chord progression. And you listen to great jazz musicians, it seems like they can play the tune over 10, 20 times and they don't seem to run out of ideas. And they're improvising and creating new melodies. But again, that all fits within the sequence of the chord progression. And it seems to me that a great deal of the Christian life has to be improvising within the chord progression or the structure of the Christian faith. Um, it, uh, you, uh, this is only an audio podcast, but we're recording where we can see each other and you're, you're nodding, you're in agreement with me, which I'm very encouraged by. But, but isn't this a picture of we live out the Christian life needing to improvise within the structure of the gospel and of biblical theology? Well, yeah. First of all, I think that's a you know a great characterization. Um, um, Wynton Marsalis has characterized jazz as a conversation. Uh, he said that whereas you know whereas other forms of music are like a poetry reading or a recitation where you've memorized things, that jazz is really a conversation. And very much within the parameters, as you said, of the structure of the song, the form of the song. 
what anybody plays is going to be dependent on what anybody else plays. It really is a back and forth, you know, kind of conversation thing. I think that one of the things that's, you know, that's beneficial about that, as I think of it from, from the standpoint of somebody who plays the music, is you're always thinking about what can I do to, uh, to support and, uh, you know, and come and, and encourage and, you know, and help that, uh, that, that the person who's soloing or, I think that one of the problems sometimes in the, you know, in, in kind of the Christian faith is that we're so eager to, or I should say, not in the Christian faith, but among Christians, that we're so eager to convince people that they're, uh, that they're, that they're sinners, that a lot of times Christians don't do anything that's encouraging to anyone. <laughs> mm. um, they, mm. you know, they, they just want to tell people how, how, you know, how awful they are. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and I have just found that, uh, that as I, uh, that, that, that as I, you know, go into these situations, not just musically, but get to know people, uh, open up to them, uh, make myself vulnerable, um, you know, tell people things about them that I appreciate that those things, whereas I think some Christians would think, oh, no, you don't want to do that because people will think they're good in themselves or uh, whatnot. I found that uh, a lot of times that those are really just kind of foundational to having an open relationship with people that facilitates the gospel. And mm-hmm. because people are made in the image of God, all, all people, um, you know, have good things about them that are reflected. And, uh, and, and, all, and all redeemed, even redeemed people, still have remnants of, of sin. So, mm-hmm. so human beings, just by virtue of, of being made in the image of God, uh, you know, fallen though we are, this kind of conglomeration of, a, you know, goodness that has taint to it. One of the questions that matter that we hope to pursue throughout all of these different podcasts is, do you want to experience the power of a transformed life? That's the focus of our C.S. Lewis Institute Fellows Program, a year-long fellows program. And we're at this time accepting applications for the next round of uh, fellows programs. Please visit our website, cslewisinstitute.org, and then go slash fellows underscore program, or just go searching on our website for the fellows program and uh, prayerfully consider applying. Yeah. And, and it does seem to me that um, um, music touches people in a way that makes them think there is something more to life. There, there's something, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm reluctant to say supernatural, but maybe I shouldn't be reluctant. There is something divine or something transcendent about it. Um, I'm, I'm always intrigued with the fact that, that so many people will say when they're listening to a piece of music, and music must occur in time, they will say that when I listen to this piece of music, it's as if time stands still. Mm. So it's this thing that occurs in time, and yet it points to a timelessness. And that's true of any kind of music. Um, uh, Again, coming back to the uniquenesses of jazz, I I, I wanna be careful that that we're not saying negative things about other kinds of music. Um, I, you know, on my car ride into the office, the C.S. Lewis Institute office this morning, I listened to Beethoven's fifth piano concerto and oh my, was it just delightful. 
Um, but but classical music, uh, and again, classical classical musicians need to listen. It's a it's also a kind of conversation. They need to listen. Um, but they're playing prescribed notes that have been decided beforehand. Whereas in jazz, uh, they're improvising, they're making things up. And so perhaps it's more of a spontaneous conversation and it does require more listening. Well, I shouldn't say more, but it requires a listening. And like you said, a supporting of, I read an interview that you did um, about this whole thing. Let's kind of point it in a different direction. You you commented in this interview about Christianity's influence on jazz. So mm-hmm. so we've been talking about jazz's influence on the Christian that that living a jazz kind of shaped life can help in our spiritual growth. But how about coming from the other direction? How did how did Christianity influence and shape jazz? Yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, it's a it's a it's a kind of an interesting story, I, I think, because, you know, jazz uh, grows out of blues, which is a, which is an earlier music, um, you know, the Jim Crow era, uh, post-Civil War, uh, probably just before the turn of the 20th century. Um, blues was not really known to white audiences. A uh, jazz musician by the name of W.C. Handy was the one who introduced it to uh, audiences when he had when he had heard it. But um, but uh, but 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 blues is a uh, is an earlier uh, is an earlier form. And so you know so 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 what is the the blues? Well, the blues I think really puts its finger on what the problems, the difficulties in life are. Now, I, you know, I, I think I pointed out uh, in, that, uh, in, in, in that interview that you're referring to that, uh, that, er, that early on uh, churches, neither white nor black, really liked the blues or jazz. And uh, that was largely because of the associations of places where it was played. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, that could be in, in some kind of, uh, you know, rough places or keep people out late Saturday night so they weren't paying attention on uh, on Sunday morning. And and there are some what I would call, you know, dirty blues that are kind of like, uh, you know, body or racy. But if you listen to most blues songs, most blues songs are a lamentation of sin. Mm. Mm. And it's and, and it's really putting its finger on what the what the what the problems are. Um, in, in a way, sometimes I think that the Christian faith wants to, particularly the American Christian faith, wants to rush past. We don't really, we like triumphal things. We don't like suffering and we don't like to sit there in, uh, in suffering. You know, but as I've pointed out uh, uh, in other places that, um, that, that really the Bible is, uh, is, is, is full of, of blues. The the writer of Ecclesiastes begins that book with meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And the, and the book goes on. And at the end of it, there's an encouragement to trust in God, but there's no answer to the, to the, to the difficult questions that's given. Mm, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, here's your intellectual satisfaction, nor are things remedied. You know, people, people still die. Life still seems uh, unfair. Um, Psalm 88 is a, is a Psalm of lament. That closes, it closes, the psalm ends with the really cheery line, my closest friend is darkness. 
those, those are the blues. That's the that, that's the blues. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And uh, so there's a, this is not, was not jazz related, but there's a woman by the name of Esther Fleece who wrote a book called um, No More Faking Fine. And, um, and in it, she had this quote, I just think it's you know, really meaningful to this topic. She said, spiritual maturity does not mean living a lamentless life. The songs of lament are the very songs we need for healing, but these are not the songs that we sing in church. We often call worship music praise songs, and these are good and necessary songs guiding us to praise God. But where are the songs expressing the harsh realities of the world we live in? If we begin to believe that God only accepts happy songs, our perception of God and, and the life of faith will be skewed. There were times when I had to awkwardly walk out of church in the middle of a service because I could not honestly sing. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Mm, mm. You know, and 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 the purpose of the blues is, as anybody who has you know really uh, uh, played them um, will, will tell you that that's not me. But people you know who really played the blues, that the purpose of singing the blues was not to be blue; it was to face the blues. Mm, so that good, you, good. You could deal with the blues, and um, you know, interestingly, I think you uh, know, Randy, that uh, about a year ago, my my youngest daughter passed away suddenly, mm -hmm. and it was a devastating uh, blow. And, um, you know, I had a friend of mine, very well-meaning, said, well, you should listen to praise music. Well, I, I wouldn't have found much solace in praise music, but where I did find a lot of solace was in listening to blues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank because, you for sharing that. Because the blues like the book of Ecclesiastes says, you're not crazy for feeling the way you do. Mm, yes. Oh, that's right. And look at how many of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They start out with things like, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever sung a song in a worship service that began with those words, but there are so many times when that's, that is where we begin. And you're right, the blues and jazz, it, they, they help us feel those laments more deeply. And, and if you can feel those laments or those um, regret for personal sin or um, ache for a world to be made right in a world filled with unjust injustice. And we could go on and on and on. If, if, if you feel those laments deeply, profoundly, then, then the good news of the gospel is so rich and full and meaningful. Um, so we're not, we're not just staying in, you know, lamenting all the times. Uh, other than Psalm 88, all of the other lament psalms do turn the corner, um, but they take a while to turn the corner. And um, some of them have that, that great Hebrew word, selah, you know, and that means to kind of pause and reflect. And uh, I've heard a number of people say, sometimes selah takes several days. Um, <laughs> let's not turn that corner so quickly. We do need to turn the corner for sure, but we don't want to short circuit the process. And, and again, for me, listening to blues and jazz can help me. Like you just said, it doesn't mean it, it means to face the blues or to face the lament, face the difficulties. What, what was the name of that book again by Esther Fleece? Oh, it's called uh, No More Faking Fine. 
And and you recommend it? Uh, I I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've enjoyed it. I don't know exactly what she faced, but she went through a difficult time in her life and tried to deal with that by mm. the typical Christian response that I'm supposed to be okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and and so from from what you know, she's a Christian. Oh, she is. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. Well, um, I, I want to touch a little bit on uh, Duke Ellington, because I also saw that you mentioned him in the interview. And um, uh, what a complex figure, but a brilliant genius and a great composer. And, and I really do mean a composer, not, not just a songwriter. I think sometimes we, we think, oh, he just wrote songs. Well, he, he really, I think, uh, aspired to be a classical composer and, and writing of things like symphonies and tone poems and things like that. Speak a little bit about, about Duke Ellington and, and how you've grown in appreciation for him. Yeah, he, uh, he, he really was a uh, very, uh, um, um, you know, a complex figure. Um, a very, if you've seen pictures of him when he was young, a very dapper man. Um, he uh, he had a, uh, a a great fondness for women, and they apparently for him. And uh, as I said, that, <laughs> that was nicely her. said. Nicely yeah. said. Very good. When, let's when, keep when, this. Let's keep this podcast. You know, for a broad audience. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think I said one other time when I was speaking on it, uh, Randy, that he had a uh, he he had a King David like appreciation for women, mm-hmm. and. Um, and uh, you know had those uh, you know had those uh, you know those those weaknesses, but. Um, his mother, when he was growing up, took him to two churches every Sunday to Sunday school and, um, and took him to, to, you know, to those two church services, two different churches, one in the, one in the uh, morning and uh, one in the evening, an AME church and a, and a Baptist church. And um, Duke Ellington said later that he got three educations. He said, I, I got an education at school. I got an education at the pool hall. And I got an education from the Bible and the other two mm-hmm. educations would make no sense if it weren't for the education from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a kind of a complex figure, I think, because he played jazz and jazz was uh, on the outs. I think it's complicated as to, you know, why that was. But certainly in, um, you know, in the dominant white culture at the time. Um, there was a lot of fear that jazz would would uh, cause the kind of acceptance of African Americans and African American culture, mm. and um, and so it, it was on the outs with uh, with white churches and white culture that um, you know uh, for good or bad a lot of times churches once they get in, ingrained in the society become the uh, defenders of the status quo, and um, and so uh, and then. And then, of course, the you know the black churches are are, are fighting for a kind of an acceptance, and uh, you know having a a, a, a a music that's so disliked was not uh, you know probably a way to get there, um, so disliked by the white churches, and so I think that uh, you know that Ellington felt unwelcome at churches mm-hmm. because of what he did, and and yet um, his uh, his. Um, you know, his, uh, the members of his band, I, I think it was a trombone player, I cannot remember the fellow's name, uh, actually later became a Roman Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, uh, and he, you know, people have said that they would at times walk in on Duke and find him kneeling in prayer, mm-hmm. or see him sitting reading his Bible. 
Um, I think that uh, that you know that toward the uh, toward the end of his life, um, that he uh, you know uh, uh, wrote. If you know Duke Ellington, wrote um, three sacred concerts. Yes, yes. In, you know mm-hmm. different at different uh, places, and um, and uh, um, yeah, I you know it 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 seems to me that there's a uh, there's a um, a uh, book by uh, uh, I think her name is uh, Jenna Tullesteed. I think it's called uh, Duke Ellington: A Spiritual Biography, hmm. and uh, and 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 that's a that's a that's a book worth reading to see the kind of complexity of of uh, of, uh, of of Edward Ellington and his uh, his uh, the, you know kind of a, a a an unorthodox off the beaten path, but but seemed to be sincere spirituality. Are you a fisher of men? Uh, do you want to be a fisher of men? Do you do you struggle with this call that Jesus places on us to be fishers of men? Uh, discipling others is also a significant part of that whole enterprise, and it's a way to abide in Christ. It's a way for us to know Christ more fully, become more like Him, and participate in His work of building His kingdom. So as we disciple, we become co-workers with Jesus. As he helps us mature, he allows us to help him mature others and nurture them towards reproduction and expanding of his kingdom. And so we have many free small group resources on our website, uh, many different things to help you in this discipleship process, both to grow as a disciple and to disciple others. So please check out cslewisinstitute.org slash products. Yeah. And I might want to say for any of our listeners who have never listened to jazz, have very little interest, uh, Duke Ellington's a good way to start um, because he does have a whole lot of songs that are relatively short and really beautiful songs. A lot of them are a lot of fun. Uh, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Uh, I just, I, I find his, uh, East St. Louis tootle do to be a really, really great yeah. fun song. Uh, so he's a good one to enter. We, we don't have to be saying that we're approving of everything about Duke Ellington's life. No, I mean, there were some terrible things about his life. Um, but, but, um, but music, I believe, is a gift from God, even if it comes through very, very imperfect composers, and they all are. Um, but there, well, like, but like there Mozart. is, yeah, like that's Mozart. right. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, um, you know, I read a, a collection of short bios of all of these different composers, and the, the vast majority of them are just a mess, and they made a wreck of their lives. Um, there was one chapter about um, Bach and Dvorak and Haydn, I think it was. I said, um, these are the only three that seem close to sane. And <laughs> the others were just, you know, but so, so yes, so all of these are imperfect ones. And, um, but the experience of allowing jazz to help us lament and regret sin more, I think is one of the greatest things uh, in my own experience. And also listening to great improvisers, it creates a, or it helps stimulate a kind of creativity 
that is is not all that different from biblical meditation. You know, you take a phrase in the Bible and you meditate on it and you you improvise on it and you start exploring of, okay, where does this truth of God's word apply as for me in my family, in my job, in my community? And um, there's something about listening to the way musicians improvise and expand that I think can be a very helpful stimulus for us. But yeah. anyway, I, we should, we should bring this to a closer a little bit, but say any, any other comments you want to make about the unique ways jazz have, have shaped you in your own faith. Um, but, you know, I think that those things that, uh, that, that, that you had said that, um, of, uh, you know, of, of sometimes really just sort of, you know, deep, I think that, there's a tendency sometimes in our Christian circles to, uh, to, you know, to sort of whitewash sin. Um, mm. You know, m- my sins are acceptable. The other guys are not so much right. Mm. That, uh, mm. that, that, that we have a whole uh, host of, uh, of, uh, of culturally, maybe even ecclesiastically uh, acceptable uh, sin. Um, I think that that, you know, kind of transcending connection that you, uh, that, that music brings um when you can appreciate the, you know, the artistry of somebody also, I think, you know, helps you see your own flaws in that. I, you know, I, my, my, my mom, and I, I've told this story to some people before my, my mom, um, I told you like later in her life, she became a Christian mm-hmm. and that was really great. Well, she had, she went, she ended up uh, joining a church and she'd read the new Testament several times. She'd never read the old Testament before. Mm. And so she told me one time, uh, um, a couple of years before death, she said, I'm going to read the Old Testament. And I said, um, well, that's great, Mom. I said, don't, you know, don't be put off if there's things that you don't understand. It's a very different culture than the Greco-Roman world. It's more removed. The language it's translated from is different than, you know, than the, than the languages we're used to. And she said, okay. So um, Talked to her a few weeks later about it. I'd spoken with her in the intervening time, but didn't talk to her about. Uh, and I said, hey, how's your reading of the Old Testament coming? And she said, oh, that. She said, I gave that up like it was tobacco or something. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, why? Was it too hard to understand? She said, no. She said, it wasn't hard to understand at all. She said, those, those people were horrible. Uh, daughters sleeping with their father, people murdering one another, stealing things from one another. She said, I couldn't, I couldn't take it. They were, they were horrible people. Well, you know, it's not just that that they had those problems. We have those, we (laughs) have those problems. And what I've, you know, and and what I said, which I think is really true that the, that, that, that the, that the New Testament highlights the savior that God sent to us the Old Testament tells us why we needed him. Mm, well said, well said. Yeah. Well, well, well. Thanks so much, Chip. This has been a fun discussion for me. I hope it has been for our listeners as well. I hope there aren't too many people just rolling their eyes thinking, jazz, I just, I I, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't into it before. I'm still, no, I, I hope you'll check it out. Um, I hope that there'll be some blues singing that leads you to Uh, greater rejoicing and uh, uh, singing of those praise songs. 
well, we hope that this podcast, like all of our podcasts, have been helpful for you as you seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Uh, please visit the different links that I'll put in the show notes uh, below this, and please visit our website, cslewisinstitute.org, for lots of different resources and articles and uh, other materials that can help you uh, grow in discipleship of uh, deep, deep heart and mind. Thanks.